There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Sing it, Dorothy. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans' WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, boy, howdy, we are clearly not in Kansas anymore, Desi Doyen, I'm sorry to say. This is true. Uh, But today is another one of those days when it's like Sophie's Choice, trying to figure out what most needs coverage on uh, on the broadcast. Yeah. So many things going on. uh, But hey, with only an hour, that's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on (laughs) how you might look at it. But uh, with that hour, we've got our usual difficult choices to make, and they're Harder today than uh, ever, uh, frankly. So please forgive us for what we don't cover, but that you think we should have. You can feel free to uh, send me your complaints anytime via bradcast at bradblog.com. Always good to hear from you, good, bad, or otherwise. So we will, uh, well, we'll take our best shot uh, here. And uh, and shortly, we will cover a story that I know definitely is not getting the coverage that it warrants given that it could result in millions of Americans, millions of your fellow Americans, millions of your fellow human beings losing their homes, becoming homeless, if a Trump administration uh, administration scheme that is now moving through Congress actually passes through. And why wouldn't it? The administration and Republicans in Congress keep telling us what a booming economy that we are all in. And yet somehow that boom does not appear to be trickling down to the folks who need it most in our country. And if Trump's housing and urban development department has its uh, has its way, things are likely to become much worse for uh, those fellow human beings in our country, the folks who can least afford it. We'll be joined uh, in a little bit by former administration HUD official uh, Diane Yentel to cover that very disturbing scheme 
in a bit. But in the meantime, uh, we've got several stories here that I think should concern all Americans as well, which you may have heard about, which but which I, I think need to be underscored, highlighted, outlined uh, and uh, with, with chase con- lights around yeah, them exactly. and, uh, and horns, air horns. Exactly. Along with context added above and beyond what you may have read about uh, as it flew, as some of these stories uh, flew across your Twitter and Facebook feeds. Um, so uh, let me start here in that regard. Um, a longtime 30 year staffer for the Senate Intelligence Committee has been arrested on charges of lying to federal investigators probing the potential leaking of classified information. According to the Justice Department announcement on Thursday night, a federal grand jury indicted the staffer James A. Wolf, 58 years old, on three counts of making false statements in December about contacts with reporters, including providing sensitive information related to the work of the Senate Intelligence Committee, where he served as security director for 29 years. He was arrested on Thursday. Also, on the same night, the New York Times reported that the telephone and electronic communications of one of its reporters were seized by the Justice Department back in February as part of the investigation without the knowledge of the reporter, Ollie Watkins of the New York Times, which appears to be a gross violation of the DOJ's own guidelines for dealing with supposedly First Amendment-protected journalists. The Times said uh, FBI agents approached Watkins about a previous three-year romantic relationship that she had with Wolf, this staffer on the Senate Intelligence Committee who was arrested. He's a former military member who has served through both Republican and Democratic majorities in his post on the Senate Intel Committee. So they uh, approached Watkins, uh, I guess, uh, about this three-year relationship that she had with Wolf and uh, asserted that Wolf had helped her with articles while they were dating. But Watkins told The Times, The New York Times, that Wolf was not a source of classified information for her. Now, notably, Wolf has been charged with lying to federal investigators, not for leaking classified information, at least not at this time. The Times said in a statement that the actions by the Justice Department, quote, will endanger reporters' ability to promise confidentiality to their sources and undermine the ability of a free press to shine a light on government actions. That should be a grave concern, the paper said, to anyone who cares about an informed citizenry. Now, I worry about uh, this country and how many of us actually care about an informed citizenry anymore at this point. In any event, at least one case uh, in which Wolf is alleged to have improperly shared non-public information, again, not classified information, at least not according to the uh, to the indictment, not classified information, but uh, what they're calling non-public information, information that was not being officially made public by the committee. 
So uh, one case in which uh, he was alleged to have shared this information involved the Senate Intelligence Committee's Russia probe. According to the indictment, a classified document was provided to the Senate committee in March of 2017, which involved an individual who is identified in the document as only male one. Wolf, quote, received, maintained and managed the document on behalf of the committee. Remember, he was in charge of security for the committee. That night, however, Wolf is alleged to have exchanged text messages with a reporter and also spoken to her by phone. That reporter is believed to be Watkins, who's now at The New York Times. Though Wolf spoke allegedly, uh, allegedly spoke with a number of other journalists as well. I think three other ones are noted, although we don't know their names yet. They haven't been identified. Several weeks later, an article was published under uh, that reporter's byline revealing the identity of male one. Uh, as uh, f- former Trump campaign uh, advisor Carter Page. It's not clear if the information that authorities allege was leaked from that classified document was itself classified. So the document was classified, but we don't know if the information they're saying that Wolf put out there. And again, we don't know for sure if it's to Watkins, but that's what is being intimated here. NBC appropriate uh, uh, NBC notes here appropriately in an update correction to their original misleading coverage on that point that there could be information inside that document that was not classified, even though the document itself was classified again. He has not been charged with leaking classified information. He's only been charged with lying to federal officials, which is a crime. Watkins was a uh, reporter for BuzzFeed at the time that this happened. And an April 3 article with her byline revealed that uh, former Trump campaign policy advisor Carter Page had met with and passed documents to a Russian intelligence operative in 2013. That article came out just a few weeks after Wolf uh, supposedly talked to her on the phone and by text. Committee rules, again, not laws, but committee rules on the Senate Intelligence Committee explicitly state that no senator or committee staff member, quote, shall disclose in whole or in part or by way of summary, the contents of any classified or committee-sensitive papers, materials, briefings, testimony, or other information received by or in the possession of the committee to any other person, except as authorized by the committee. Anyone found in violation of those committee rules could then be referred to the Senate Ethics Committee for action, not to the Department of Justice, but to the Senate Ethics Committee, First Amendment and uh, journalism advocacy groups have accused the government of overstepping the First Amendment in its targeting of journalists in its various leak investigations, a campaign that began during the Obama administration, though though that administration put in place new measures to include at least some First Amendment protections for journalists. Those new guidelines, however, seem to be uh, seem to have been ignored entirely by the Trump administration's DOJ. Ollie Watkins is 
having her uh, private records scrutinized and spied on by the government for doing her job as a journalist. According to the Freedom of the Press Foundation, they said in a statement that all leak investigations, whether they directly target reporters or not, are a grave threat to press freedom. Whistleblowers are the lifeblood of reporting, and the Trump administration is directly attacking journalists' rights by bringing these cases. President Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions had disclosed in August that the Justice Department had tripled the number of criminal leak investigations, signaling that federal investigators are expanding the previous administration's already aggressive policies. The uh, Press Foundation uh, says that the Justice Department's move should be loudly condemned by everyone, no matter your political preference. Trevor Tim, the executive director of the foundation on Thursday night, described this, uh, these developments as an aggressive escalation of the Trump Justice Department's already disturbing crackdown on leaks, resulting in his DOJ secretly obtaining a year's worth of phone calls and emails from The New York Times' Ali Watkins, who previously uh, covered national security issues for BuzzFeed. A year's worth of information now. Secretly. Secretly. Yeah, that's what's that is. Uh, that's what's so disturbing here. Trevor Tim notes the phone and email records seized by the government, uh, which Watkins was notified about only after the fact and was therefore unable to challenge it in court. Those phone and email records include, quote, those associated with her university email address from her undergraduate years, according yeah. to the Times. That's what that's what chilled me the most. They went all the way back to her undergraduate email to well, find out what other stuff she said. Now, you can say, OK, maybe she still was using or still had that undergraduate email forward to her current email. Therefore, they had a right to access it because it might contain something. But still, that's going way back for something that they're not even clear that that actually happened well it's unclear actually how far back they've gone i mean they were they were using that email address they were they did apparently seize that email address from her undergraduate years don't know if they went back more than a year's worth in time it's also unclear whether they actually looked at the messages or just the the records themselves uh you know the content the subject versus lines. the actual log and stuff well the the log of yeah who she got from what but you can tell a lot from that story of you know who who she sent or received email from the uh, Justice Department guidelines stress that seizure of journalists' email and phone records is only to be the last resort in such cases and only in extreme cases when, for example, national security itself has been put at risk and they uh, the, the DOJ just can't do anything else. The fact that they apparently did not ask her for this information or even subpoena it from her, but rather just took it without her knowledge is gravely troubling and should be so for everybody, every American. I know that Fox News was up in arms when Obama's DOJ took similar actions against one of their reporters. We were also uh, up in arms uh, about it at the time. So I assume that Sean Hannity and his friends will all be absolutely furious about this today and for many months to come, right? Uh, you know, I know as a journalist, uh, frankly, I as a journalist, I always assume 
that my uh, that my email, that my text messages can be seen by others, whether it's the government or anybody else. Uh, but still, the idea that uh, if I learned today that uh, the Department of Justice went back a year and looked at all of my emails to and from everyone, uh, yes, it's very chilling. BuzzFeed editor, uh, editor-in-chief Ben Smith tweeted, quote, We are deeply troubled by what looks like a case of law enforcement interfering with a reporter's constitutional right to gather information about her own government. The indictment of Wolf, released by DOJ, which, as always, should be taken with a huge grain of salt, Tim notes, again, uh, does not, at least not yet, charge him with leaking any classified information. So we don't even yet have a case here of, you know, as as was the case with uh, Fox News, where there actually was classified national security information that was being leaked to a reporter. Now, to me... You know, that's that's fine as far as a reporter goes. A, re- a reporter, if, if, if someone sends me a classified document, I can release that document. I can report that document. There's nothing unlawful about my doing it. The person who had access to that uh, classified information and released it, they could be charged for a crime. But... In theory, at least, I could not be. And the idea that the government is now cracking down on reporters secretly taking their information, their email information, their text information without telling them, without taking any other measures to ask them about it first in a case where no one has been actually charged with leaking information, leaking class, I'm sorry, leaking classified information. And yet they have upped it to this level. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 very troubled by this. Uh, in any event, uh, he, so he's not been charged with any classified leaking any classified information. There are at least three other identified reporters right now who may have received the same treatment that Ollie Watkins did. As far as we know, we don't yet know because Wolf was said to have been in contact with them as well. So if he was in contact with them, I guess. They're fair game as well. And and to be honest, there's three that we know of related to this particular case. We have no idea how many other reporters in other issues, in other investigations, are yep. also being uh, monitored and surveilled in all of their communications that they have uh, related mm-hmm. to anything that yeah. they're doing. The indictment contains the content of conversations that Wolf allegedly had with multiple reporters on Signal which is an encrypted messaging application. Trevor Tim notes that it's unclear at this time whether those identified, those unidentified reporters, those three unidentified reporters, had their phone and email records directly surveilled as well. The indictment also does not make clear just how the Justice Department accessed those messages from Signal, given that Signal supposedly provides end-to-end encrypted texting that can only be read by the sender and receiver of the messages. He uh, posits that it's most likely uh, the most likely explanation here is that investigators gain physical access to Wolf's phone. So even if the messages were encrypted going to and from uh, these various journalists, if they got the phone, if they got Wolf's own phone, they can open up the app on his phone, uh, presumably, and look at exactly what it was that he was saying, even though this was an encrypted app. 
Tim says there is so far no evidence that Signal's uh, security protections have been compromised, but it's a reminder to all journalists to take every precaution possible when speaking with sources, even when using encryption. He says, while this is the first publicly known instance of the Trump administration directly surveilling a reporter to attempt to root out their source, there are undoubtedly others, as you noted, Des. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has previously stated that the department has tripled the number of leak investigations since Obama was in office. And, of course, the Obama administration was criticized for having prosecuted more leakers than all previous presidential administrations before him combined. Now, under the Trump administration, that effort, which was once condemned by folks on both the right and the left, that effort is now being tripled under this administration by its own admissions. Reporter Bart Gelman uh, pointed out that it appears that investigators already had access to Wolf's phone and by subpoenaing Watkins' personal records, they almost certainly would be able to uncover other confidential sources of the national security journalist who uh, was doing her constitutionally protected work. So, you know, just by getting her uh, the information here, whether they even looked at it, they will be able to see all sorts of other folks that she was talking to. Even if they don't look at what she was talking about, they'll be able to see who her sources were. And not just her sources, like I said, everybody else's sources. So it not only quashes what happened in the past with past whistleblowers, but in future whistleblowers. They're going to look at this and say, I have wrongdoing. I have evidence of it. I can't tell anybody. This is the sort of thing that puts a chill on all reporters, on all journalism. It is exactly what the First Amendment was meant to avoid. And we are stepping, well, putting it kindly, we are perilously close to uh, stepping over the line. I think we may have already stepped far over it with uh, some of these extreme actions. That was hardly the only extreme move by this extremist administration last night after we got off air. Uh, There were several. So let me do this. Let's take a break and we will come back with uh, another one of those stories. And uh, my guest a little bit later, take a quick break here. I'm Brad Friedman. We'll be back with more. This is your broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Do you really want to Yes, apparently they do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, this uh, attack on journalism, this attack on our Constitution was not the 
was hardly the only attack on uh, all Americans that the uh, Trump administration was apparently very proud uh, to bring out on uh, last night as all of this news was flying by and continues to fly by today. Uh, But this is another story that I think people need to understand, have context for, uh, so they don't overly worry about it uh, or worry the or appropriate amount. Worry about it. Yeah, <laughs> worry the exactly. Exact right amount. This was a story uh, you were quite troubled about. This I, I was. was with you when the um, when, when these the headlines came, came in on this. Yeah, this is like a gut punch. Yep. Uh, this was uh, in a dramatic move. The Trump administration declared its intention to refuse to defend. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, from a federal lawsuit by 20 GOP-controlled states who are arguing that Congress's repeal of the individual mandate in the Trump GOP tax cut bill last year renders part of the rest of the health care law unconstitutional somehow, according to a filing from the Department of Justice Thursday evening. In particular, the administration is arguing that the ACA's ban on insurance provider discrimination based on pre-existing conditions and restrictions on uh, charging older and less healthy patients higher premiums are invalid. Uh, that's what the administration is saying. We need to get real explain. They are requesting that the court put a halt to those particular those two provisions as of January 2019. When enforcement of the individual mandate is set to be terminated, essentially what the Republican attorneys general here, led by Texas's Ken Paxton, who is himself under federal indictment for securities fraud, what they are arguing here and that the DOJ is now agreeing to uh, and refusing to defend against is that the U.S. Supreme Court determined that the individual mandate, that's the penalty for not purchasing health insurance that uh, the Supreme Court determined that was, in fact, constitutional back in 2012 because it included a monetary penalty. So the Supreme Court regarded it as a tax and perfectly appropriate. But now that the monetary penalty was removed by Congress last year in that big tax cut bill, that somehow renders all All of these other provisions of the Affordable Care Act, including protections for those with pre-existing conditions and guarantees against being charged more just uh, just because you are older. Those provisions, they are arguing, are themselves unconstitutional somehow. Now, that's regarded as a pretty huge stretch for uh, by supporters of the Affordable Care Act. But that's the case that's being made by these right wing attorneys general in these Republican states. Nonetheless, Paxton says that this uh, this suit will ensure, quote, Americans are finally free from the stranglehold of Obamacare. Do you feel strangle held by Obamacare, Desi Doyen? Oh, hell no. It means he means that uh, that Americans are finally free of the stranglehold of getting actual health care. So now what the Republicans are doing here obviously sounds very troubling and it frankly, it is very troubling. Uh, No matter how ridiculous the case might be, according to experts, the fact that the Department of Justice here is both agreeing with the case and refusing 
to defend the law of the land, the law duly enacted by the United States Congress. The fact that the DOJ is saying, yeah, we're, we ain't going to defend that. That is itself very troubling. It's also uh, largely, if not completely, unprecedented for the Department of Justice to not defend a government statute in all but the very most extreme circumstances. For example, when the Obama administration said that they could not defend Bill Clinton's Defense of Marriage Act after a number of courts in a number of states had uh, found that bans on same-sex marriage as well as the Defense of Marriage Act itself was unconstitutional. And in fact, that law was later struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court as unconstitutional. So they, did, they weren't doing it on uh, political grounds because they disagreed with it politically. They felt that Bill Clinton's Defense of Marriage Act could not be defended based on the whatever it had been at that point, the uh, 10 or 15 years that it had uh, been put in place and the various court rulings around it and so forth. Nonetheless, the, uh, the Obama administration's DOJ did defend a whole bunch of laws that were passed under previous administrations. Uh, that they clearly did not agree with politically, but they defended them, those laws, in court nonetheless, because that's what the DOJ does in all but the most extreme circumstances. So to that end, uh, on Thursday night, the DOJ uh, change to the way they were regarding this law and this lawsuit that change was signaled earlier in the day when three career DOJ attorneys withdrew from the case, withdrew from defending the law against this lawsuit that was filed by these Republican states. And instead of those three career, uh, you know, attorneys, those line attorneys at the Department of Justice, a political appointee was signed on to represent the administration in this case which had been pending before the district court for the uh, Northern District of Texas for several months. A DOJ spokesperson declined to comment to media at the time about the change in the attorneys. He said it was uh, they, they characterized it as simply, quote, personnel issues. Yes, personnel issues uh, where there were three professional career line attorneys who were doing their job in defending the law of the land. But the Trump administration didn't want them to, so they were forced to step aside and be replaced by a political apparatchik to use the Department of Justice and the court system for political means, which is decidedly not not supposed to be the way that the DOJ is used by any administration. The Trump administration and the GOP-controlled House and Senate made several unsuccessful attempts to repeal the ACA, Back in 2017. Uh, but they were unsuccessful. So now they've got another way to go about it, apparently. Thursday's legal brief, according to uh, Alice Olstein over at TPM, is a new phase of the administration's crusade against the Affordable Care Act, as the DOJ is generally duty-bound to argue in defense of any current laws or policies that come under legal challenge. In this case, even though the DOJ is refusing to defend the Affordable Care Act, several attorneys general, I think there's about 17 of them uh, representing Democratic-leaning blue states led by California, they have intervened in this case in defense of the law, and they will argue that it should be preserved in its entirety. 
So it's 20 red state attorneys general versus 17 blue state attorneys general. An attorneys general battle royale, if you will, over this law, uh, where if the blue states lose in this case, tens of millions of Americans in all states will be adversely impacted. All Americans, in fact, not just those uh, who rely on Obamacare, by the way. This yeah, is going to affect everyone. and Especially yeah. those people with pre-existing conditions, which is, you know, just about everybody. Now that we've all gone out and gotten health care because it's affordable or more affordable than it used to be. One of the groups involved in defending the ACA here told Olstein that uh, that reasoning for the Republican, the, the reasoning for the Republican AG's argument, quote, is worse than ridiculous. And the consequence is that starting next year, sick and old people will have to pay much more for coverage the key element of the Obama reforms. And by the way, uh, this is going to this is happening in the next few months. This is going to be happening as insurance companies are again deciding how much premiums are going to be next year. So even if this this uh, case is not decided by next year, which it almost certainly will be, even if it's not decided, the uncertainty, as long as this case is pending, that uncertainty is going to, as it did last year, lead insurance companies, as you know, as it did last year when the, uh, uh, the, the Republicans were trying to kill the bill outright, and then when, they, when the Trump administration started killing certain provisions of it, that itself raised uh, uh, premiums in a huge way. So this is also going to raise uh, premiums in a huge way, uh, no matter what really happens here. But uh, in any event, yes, there is reason to be very troubled by what the Republicans and the Trump administration are trying to do here with this law. But a few things to keep in mind. Experts see the case itself as very weak. Uh, So maybe you'll feel better about that. And even though the Department of Justice is refusing to defend against it, as they should, even though they don't like the law on a political level, uh, even though they're not defending it, there are a whole bunch of states and a whole bunch of other stakeholders who are very eager to defend it. Also, none of this. Uh, will likely go over very well for many voters. Uh, This is happening as we're heading into these crucial midterm elections. Um, The majority of uh, Americans at this point both support Obamacare, and certainly there is an overwhelming majority of Americans who definitely support the very popular protections against charging more for old people. And against insurance companies being able to refuse to sell policies at all to those with pre-existing conditions. Which, by the way, includes more than a quarter of the population. So those are very popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, there are a lot of people, Democrats, Republicans, independents alike, who are not going to to, to, to like this attack on those provisions. And hearing guys like Ken Paxton say that uh, we want to kill the bill entirely to end the stranglehold of Obamacare. So doing this just before a crucial midterm election is probably a terrible idea for Republicans, at least if Democrats can figure out how to be smart enough to make all of this clear 
to the public and that they are running to protect the health care of every American. That said, the Republicans filing this suit in Texas apparently have drawn a, a, a pretty right wing federal judge to hear this case. So while many other judges might have laughed this case out of court, uh, they very well could get a positive result at the lower court level. Now, normally I'd say, well, don't worry. Uh, the appeals court, the Supreme Court will uh, see this for what it is. But you know what? Given the fact that the Republicans have stolen a five to four majority on the Supreme Court, given that we have this particular Supreme Court, which might be willing to do anything politically. Yeah, there is still room to be uh, concerned about this uh, case, as dumb as it might be, uh, all of which uh, yet again is still another reminder why elections and voting is so goddamn important. So, no, even if you don't care for the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare for any reason, it's an absurd argument to make that both sides are the same and that it doesn't matter who gets elected. That is the height of intellectual laziness and, I would argue, stupidity. And if you need more evidence for that, let's take a quick break here and we will talk about uh, a story that very few seem to have noticed to date. The administration's new scheme that could result in millions of Americans becoming homeless. That's getting very little coverage with everything else going on right now. So we will try to do what we can to close the gap just a bit here on the broadcast. Former Obama administration HUD official Diane Yentel joins us next to help sound that alarm. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I see moon Hard not to see it. I see trouble on the way. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, you really have to be looking the other direction to uh, not see all the bad news on the horizon here. A new U.N. report says the United States has the highest income inequality of all Western nations. Forty million Americans live in poverty. More than 13 million of these are children. More than five million live in, quote, absolute poverty, which means the conditions they face are as bad as it gets. Meanwhile, the nation's billionaire class keeps growing. The top 1% of Americans hold nearly 40% of all wealth. Trump's answer to that, of course, is more poverty. Even worse, give more of it to the rich. In December, Donald Trump and the Republicans, you'll recall, granted a $1.5 trillion tax cut to the wealthiest individuals and corporations who need that money the least. Trump's cabinet, unfortunately, is no better, not by a long shot, and it seems to be getting worse, not better, by the day. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson says his latest proposal to raise rents 
would mean a path towards self-sufficiency for millions of low-income households across the United States by pushing more people to find work. For Ebony Morris and her four small children, it could mean homelessness, according to the AP. Morris lives in Charleston, South Carolina, where most households receiving federal housing assistance would see their rent go up an average of 26 percent, according to an analysis done by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and provided to the Associated Press. But her increase would be nearly double that average. Overall, the analysis shows that in the nation's 100 largest metropolitan areas, low-income tenants, many of whom have jobs, would have to pay roughly 20 percent more each year, year after year, for rent under this new scheme. That rent increase is about six times greater than the growth in average hourly earnings, putting the poorest workers at an increased risk of homelessness because wages simply have not kept up with housing expenses. Morris says she, quote, saw public housing as an option to get on her feet to pay 30 percent of her income and get herself out of debt and eventually become a homeowner. Her monthly rent, however, would jump from $400 to $600 under this new scheme. She says, but this would put us in a homeless state. Roughly 4 million low-income households receiving HUD assistance would be affected by the proposal. HUD estimates that about 2 million would be affected immediately, while the other 2 million would see rent increases phased in after several years. This proposal, which needs congressional approval, still is the latest attempt by the Trump administration to scale back the social safety net under the belief that charging more rent will prompt those receiving federal assistance to enter the workforce and earn more income. HUD Secretary Ben Carson said in a recent interview with Fox News, quote, it's our attempt to give poor people a way out of poverty. By charging them more for their rent? The analysis shows that families would be disproportionately impacted here under this plan of the uh, 8.3 million people affected by the proposal. More than 3 million of them are children, children who could soon be homeless. Thanks to the compassionate conservatism of Ben Carson and the Trump administration and, if approved, by the Republican Congress. While much of the media are obsessed with All form of scandal, great and small these days from the Trump administration. Real people, real Americans in this case, the most vulnerable among us, are being greatly impacted and put at continuing and growing risk. Joining us now to explain what seems inexplicable, frankly, to me, is Diane Yentel. She's the president and CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a membership organization dedicated solely to achieving socially just public policy that ensures people with the lowest incomes in the U.S. have affordable and decent homes. Diane previously served as the director of the Public Housing Management and Occupancy Division at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, that would be HUD, under President Obama. She currently serves on the board of directors of the National Housing Conference, Homes for America, and the Coalition on Human Needs. Diane Yentel, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the broadcast today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, You know, this is, if I'm understanding this correctly, it's incredibly 
disturbing, at least to me, on on a whole bunch of levels here, Diane. First, is there is there any evidence, any actual evidence to support Carson's assertions here that raising rents on the lowest income Americans will somehow force them to to work more and lift themselves out of poverty? No, there's not. It's, it's as absurd as it sounds. Uh, clearly, increasing rents on people isn't the way out of poverty. It's the way deeper into poverty and potentially, as you said, potentially homelessness. I think a, a couple things to know about these rent increases that Secretary Carson is proposing. You know, One is that the increases are actually targeting the very poorest people, including seniors and people with disabilities who already are living on you know, very tight fixed incomes, and they're already at significant risk of increased risk of homelessness. Mm. The bill increases rents for households who have high medical or high child care expenses by eliminating those income deductions. So by design, the greatest burden falls on seniors, people with disabilities, and families with young kids. Yeah, in this case, uh, that woman cited by uh, by Juli- Juliet Linderman of AP, uh, Ebony Morris, uh, she's got four kids, age three, four, seven, and ten. She moved to Charleston three years ago to get her associate's degree in health science. She's a full-time pediatric pediatric assistant, working some fifty hours to get by. I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's a dumb question, but how can something like that actually help a family like hers? Well, it can't. It clearly can't. And it certainly doesn't increase this idea of self-sufficiency. I mean, as you're saying, this woman and many like her who receive housing assistance are working. Look, the vast majority of people who receive HUD's assistance today, they're seniors, they're Mm -hmm. people with disabilities, they're caring for somebody with a disability, or they are working. And they're working really low-wage jobs and the kind of jobs where sometimes you can't cobble together enough hours in a week or in a month to make ends meet. And for those households, households who are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, an average rent increase of over $100 a month doesn't mean increased self-sufficiency. It means less money for, for healthy food, for medication, for child care, and let alone being able to put aside any money for investments in their future, like education and training. And I'd say, too, with this idea of self-sufficiency and just how wrong it is, you know, eliminating income deductions for child care costs yeah. makes it harder for families to work. Yeah, that's what I was uh, about to get to here. Uh, the this is this act is called the the Make Affordable Housing Work Act, and it would eliminate deductions for medical care and yep. child care for each child yep. in the home. That's right, and it's, so again, by by design, the biggest rent hikes are felt by families with young kids or seniors or people with disabilities with high medical costs. And you know, the idea that this kind of proposal um, increases self-sufficiency or increases incentives to work harder, you know, raising rents doesn't create the kind of jobs, decent paying jobs that are needed to lift people out of poverty. Instead, it just makes it harder for those struggling families to get ahead by potentially cutting them off from the very housing benefits and services that make it possible for them to get and keep jobs in the first place. Now, HUD is claiming here that elderly uh, or disabled households, that they would be exempt from these uh, these changes. 
Uh, but an estimated 314,000 households stand to lose their elderly or disabled status and yeah. see their rents go up. How how can that be? Where, where, what's the disconnect here if they say that uh, elderly and disabled are exempt and yet 314,000 elderly and disabled uh, 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 households will have their status, I guess, removed? Yeah, so great question. A couple things on that. One is that I don't know why Secretary Carson continues to say that seniors and people with disabilities won't be impacted by this proposal because it's just not true. The one way in which uh, seniors are, could be immediately impacted are those uh, few hundred thousand households that you're talking about today because they changed the definition of who's a senior from people who are uh, age 62 up to age 65. So right away they take a group of households that are considered to be seniors today mm. and say put them in a category where they're no longer considered to be seniors. Mm. And for everybody else, for the other majority of subsidized housing tenants who are seniors and people with disabilities, they will see rent hikes phased in over six years for current tenants. But new tenants, new admissions who are seniors or people with disabilities get those higher rents right away. Is this a case where uh, states and cities, uh, if this if this measure goes forward, and it just kind of blows my mind that it's even a possibility, we'll talk about that in a second, but is this a case where states and cities could, if needed, pick up the slack, or are they not involved in subsidized uh, federal housing programs? And, and frankly, do they even have the money to fill the gap here if it becomes needed? Right. Well, that's exactly, that's the, that, that's the key point right there is that states' localities can't possibly put up enough resources to solve, at the scale necessary to solve the housing crisis that we're in right now. We are, the, the housing crisis that we're in right now has reached historic heights. It's most negatively impacting the lowest-income people. By the National Income Housing Coalition's research, we currently have a shortage of over 7 million homes affordable and available for the lowest-income people. So... Nationwide, for every 100 of the lowest-income people who need housing assistance, there's only 35 homes that are affordable and available to them. So for, we already for how many? Repeat that number. Repeat that number for me. How many? Uh, so for every this is nationally for yeah. every 100 of the lowest-income families, mm -hmm. there's just 35 homes that are affordable and available to them. And that ranges from a low of around 15 out of every 100 in Nevada mm -hmm. to kind of best-case scenario in, like, Alabama, Mississippi, and Maine, where we have only half as many affordable homes available for those lowest-income people. So we already have a severe shortage. We're in the midst of a housing crisis. So raising rents on the few households who are able to be stably housed through government assistance is just exacerbating an already pretty extreme problem. So states and localities, you know, have to do what they can to put forward resources, but they couldn't, they can't possibly meet the scale of investment necessary to solve this crisis. That's the federal government's job. Well, I guess it's going to open up a whole lot of uh, houses <laughs> to people who can't afford them now, who get thrown out, and then, oh, look at all the new empty houses available. I, you know, I think that people... 
think that uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, unemployed, lazy people. Uh, but but do we have any idea of how many of these folks are already working? The the article cites, a, you know, a number of people who are working already several jobs, 50 hours yeah. a week. What kind of numbers yeah. are we talking about? Well, I mean, I, so the, again, the vast majority of people who are receiving HUD subsidized assistance, and even beyond that, the vast majority of extremely low-income renters, are seniors or people with disabilities, that's over half. And then most of the rest are either taking care of a very young child or a family member who has a disability, or they are working, but they're working these really low-wage jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the job market and you look at the jobs that the U.S. Department of Labor projects to have the greatest growth over the next 10 years, six out of seven of them pay less than what you need to earn an hour just to be able to afford to rent a modest one-bedroom apartment. So this isn't a problem. The, the prob- there is no problem of people not working hard enough. The problem is that wages yeah. are not keeping up with housing costs. Yeah, there's a, a, a story of this uh, woman in there who, in in the AP report, who's working, had been working as a manager at a fast food joint uh, down the mm-hmm. street from where she lives, and she was making about twelve hundred dollars uh, each month from that job, but the. The restaurant closed, and uh, she says, we're trying to get the hell out of here, but minimum wage is a big, big problem. You can go to school, get an education, and the job you're going to get is still going to give you $10 an hour, even though we're the ones cleaning your dishes, cooking your food, et cetera. Where are we supposed to live? Isn't this ultimately about the, the minimum wage? I mean, these are folks who are working 50 hours a week, as is, but they can barely afford, you know, the rent as is. You know, Democrats have called for raising the minimum wage. It's broadly popular among among uh, Democrats and Republicans alike. Isn't this ultimately the real solution to this problem? Well, it's a part of the solution. It's a really important part of the solution, for sure. We absolutely have to raise the minimum wage. There's another piece of research that the coalition puts out every year. Actually, our 2018 edition is coming out uh, next week. We're publishing it, where we come up with what we call the housing wage. So that's how much somebody has to earn an hour to afford to rent a modest two-bedroom apartment. And in 2017, the housing wage was $21.21 an hour Mm. to afford to rent a two-bedroom apartment. It's a little over $17 an hour to afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment. So for minimum wage workers who are earning around at the, at the national level a little over $7 an hour, you know, those, those wages are far out of reach. But the, even for the average renter throughout the country, the average renter earns around $16 an hour. So still those housing wages are far out of reach. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to raise the minimum wage. And when we do, in most places, that will still not be enough to afford an average one- or two-bedroom apartment. So it also comes down to, you know, the type of jobs that our country is growing that are most available are also not paying decent living wages enough to afford the increasing housing costs that we're seeing across the country. Yeah, and those wages, even those people who do have jobs, who have had them for years, they're not going up. The, 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 the wages are not going up. This even after this huge tax cut that was given to the wealthy and to corporations. Uh, and now uh, Axios had a story a few days ago about 
you know, the CEOs of these companies are coming out and saying, no, we are not. They're they're unabashed about it. We are not going to raise uh, wages. As a matter of fact, we're going to be laying people off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and the tax bill, too. I mean, that's one of the greatest hypocrisies of this whole proposal. You know, that that, that Congress and this administration just passed these massive tax breaks for wealthy people and for corporations and then immediately pivoted to saying, we need to reduce the deficits that we just created by giving massive tax cuts to rich people. We need to reduce those deficits by cutting the programs that give the most basic resources, basic benefits to the lowest income, most vulnerable people in our country. And I think that's pretty shameful. Hard to see how any of this makes America great again. Uh, Diane Yentel, this would have to be approved by Congress. Uh, is, is, is there actually a real chance that this could actually be approved by this Congress and signed into law by this president? I'm asking this because it just does not seem real, but yeah. I guess it is. Uh, what's, what's the status of this bill, and is it being supported in, uh, in Congress and by this president? Well, I mean, it's certainly being supported by the president. It's being pushed by the president and, and this administration, Secretary Carson, also Mick Mulvaney at OMB. You know, these are things that he's proposed for many, many years, and this is, he sees this as his chance to get it done. I think, thankfully, I think we have to absolutely have to treat this as the threat that it is. We have to recognize that these proposed cuts to housing benefits are part of a larger assault on the entire social safety net and attempts to reduce health care for people who need it most, and to actually take away food assistance from hungry families. This is part of a larger assault. We have to recognize that and work hard to make the case to defend these programs. And I'd say, thankfully, that we have some strong congressional champions on both both sides of the aisle, uh, Republicans and Democrats, who are equally appalled by these kind of proposals. So I would not expect that the proposals, as Carson put them out there uh, as a whole, would have any chance of passing Congress, but we have to be very careful to make sure that pieces of it aren't pulled out and put onto other bills as they move through Congress. Vigilance. Uh, thank you, uh, Diane Yentel, for uh, keeping us apprised of this. Uh, please stay in touch as this moves forward, because we, you know, we'd like to uh, sound the alarm on this, because this is incredibly uh, troubling in many regards. Diane Yentel, President and CEO of the National Low Income Housing Coalition. You can get more information on them at nlihc.org. And you can follow. Uh, do you guys have a, a, a Twitter? I was going to give your uh, personal Twitter as Diane Yentel, but is there uh, one for the uh, for National Low Income Housing Coalition on Twitter? Yeah, they can follow both. Follow mine or follow it's at NLIHC. At NLIHC. Diane Yentel, greatly appreciate you joining us today, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon as, as this mess uh, unfolds. Great. Thanks so much for the time. You bet. All right, Desi Doyen, we are nothing but good news today on the broadcast, <laughs> aren't we? Yeah. Uh, all right, we got to get out, though. Uh, thank you very much, Des, our producer, and, of course, to Diane Yentel of the National Low Income Housing Coalition, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download any of them and all of them for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I hope you will find, follow, and share us. I am simply the Brad Blog. 
And my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. You, and only you, are the only ones keeping us on your public airwaves at bradblog.com slash donate. Please help us out if you can. Gotta go. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.